Hi everyone, I'm Hannah Fowler and sitting here with me for the last time is Isabel Gonzalez. Hi, we have both had a great time producing the second series of this podcast and we have learned so much about some of the current topics that theoretical chemists are working on all around the world. But sadly, now we really need to say goodbye and focus on our research to get some results of our own. So we need to say goodbye to all of you listening. Yes, but not before our last episode. And this time we've decided to move very far out of our comfort zones, as this last episode is on the topic of quantum biology. And to help us do so, we had the pleasure of meeting with broadcaster and scientist Professor Jim Al-Khalili, who has presented a number of TV series and documentaries, as well as appearing on lots of radio shows. As well as all of that, he's written and edited a number of books. Yes, it was a great pleasure to get to talk with Professor Al-Khalili. He has done such a great job to bring science to everyone and has made some very difficult concepts way more accessible to the greater public. But equally special is the topic that we are concerned about today, quantum biology. Briefly, as Jim will explain to us later, it is now widely accepted that quantum mechanics plays a very important role in some biologically relevant processes, such as quantum tunneling effects, observing enzyme reactions. And as chemists, this is not that crazy. At the end of the day, living beings are made out of cells, and these are made out of molecules with its atoms, and it is well known that quantum mechanics is the language of atoms. Right, Izzy. But quantum biology aims to take this a step further by trying to find some non-trivial mechanisms in biology which could only take place if following the laws of quantum mechanics. Okay, and a famous example of this would be during the process of photosynthesis. At this moment, we more or less know what happens at the bigger scale. How in chloroplast, chlorophyll, which is the pigment that gives plants its characteristic green colour, converts carbon dioxide and water using sunlight into oxygen and glucose. However, the full process of how this takes place hasn't been exactly determined. This is to an electronic level. And at the moment, some scientists do believe that some quantum mechanics needs to be considered in order to explain this fully. However, the current research has some concerns about the lifetime of the coherences of these processes. In general, quantum biology has brought some very interesting problems and ideas onto the table. It is a very young but fast-growing field. It is also a very highly polarizing and still slightly controversial field. So we are extremely happy to get to talk with Professor Al-Khalili on his views on the current developments and the future of quantum biology. We're here today at the University of Surrey to interview an incredibly exciting guest, Professor Jim Al-Khalili. Thank you so much for having us here today, and we're very excited to talk to you about your research. My pleasure, looking forward to it. So to start us off, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and your research interests? Yes, I began, uh, my PhD was in theoretical nuclear physics. So I began as a nuclear physicist, trying to understand the structure of atomic nuclei, nuclear reactions, very mathematical. Uh, so certainly the first 10, 15 years of my research career was spent writing code and, and calculating equations in quantum mechanics. Uh, and that's where most of my publications have been. Uh, but in recent years, I've got more interested in applying quantum mechanics in biology, which is an exciting new and I think, dare I say, speculative area of research, which yes, makes absolutely. it fresh. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about the innovative field of quantum biology. But first, because this is a topic we haven't covered in the podcast so far, would you mind explaining us a little bit what quantum biology is about? Okay, well, the first thing to say is that 
quantum biology isn't simply the acknowledgement that quantum mechanics plays a role in life. After all, you know, we are made of atoms. And so if you dig down deep enough to, to small enough scales, then you're going to hit the quantum world. And it's the same for living things as it is for any matter in the universe. So it's not that. But rather, it's that in, in recent years, experiments have suggested that there's something, aspects of non-trivial quantum mechanics are playing a role. So physicists and chemists are very used to the strange world of quantum mechanics, and the particles can be two places at once, and then they can be entangled, and you get quantum tunneling where a particle can go move through an energy field that it has no right being able to punch through. We're used to that in physics, we're used to that in chemistry. But it was always expected that you wouldn't see that in biology because quantum effects are very delicate, very ephemeral. And as soon as you, you, you mix your quantum system with the outside environment, when it's hot and noisy and complex, quantum effects dissipate very quickly, what's called decoherence. So it's very surprising to see that it would appear as though life has evolved tricks that maintain some of these quantum effects despite what's going on inside living cells. And that's what I'm interested in exploring. How has life done this? How important are these effects? Do they actually play a role in life? These does sound like a very interdisciplinary area, though. So which fields do you say this combines, and how does it combine? Well, it brings together physics, chemistry, and biology. What's interesting to me is that a lot of people in those fields are reluctant to get involved in quantum biology. They are suspicious of it. You know, many will say, oh, it's no big deal. Physicists you see, find biology hard. That's why they're doing physics, because physics is easy. <laughs> biology is complicated. It's messy. Well, for me, anyway. <laughs> um, physics, you just have a few equations. You solve them. They apply to lots of different phenomena in, in, in nature. Biology is complex, particularly so when you get down to sort of biochemistry. So physicists are reluctant to get into this field. Biologists, of course, have not studied quantum mechanics. So they are reluctant to believe that this weird stuff called quantum mechanics plays a role inside their cells. And chemists who are stuck in the middle think, what's all the fuss about? Everything is quantum at some level. Why are you inventing a new name for a field? <laughs> yes. so, so none of them are really, you know, so you have to very, be very careful about explaining what quantum biology is about, looking for non-trivial mechanisms that require quantum machinery to take place for them to work. And then we also have to be very careful that quantum biology isn't mistaken for pseudoscience, quantum consciousness, quantum this or quantum that, you know, because people use the word quantum very, very easily to explain all sorts of wacky non-scientific ideas. So this sounds like a big task. How do you go about conducting the research? Is it theory and simulations, more experimental? It's a combination of both. We have biologists working in labs trying to isolate bits of DNA and to see whether there are any sort of mutations might be sensitive to what's happening down at the atomic level. You know, protons in hydrogen bonds joining strands of DNA together. Are they behaving in a quantum way? The experiments are very difficult and the spectroscopy that you have to do to try and analyze biomolecules is very hard. The theory is in some sense easier because it's well established. We're just using, I, I come from nuclear physics, but essentially I have a training in, in, in theoretical physics and quantum mechanics. So I can use those ideas, whether it's inside a living cell or any inanimate system, it's the same equations. But what we're having to learn is how do physicists talk to biologists? How when, or even physicists and chemists talking together, you know, we use different language. We, we talk about the same phenomenon in a different way. So that's the big struggle, uh, being able to communicate clearly with each other. 
So we did find a paper you've published previously called Modelling Proton Tunnelling in the Adenine-Thymine Base Pair. Could you just give us a, a bit of a description about what this work entailed? Yes, so this work goes back all the way to the 1960s. There's a Swedish uh, physical chemist by the name of Pearl of Loudon, who very soon after Crick and Watson developed their, their model of the double helix uh, structure. Do, now, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, And in fact, I should say that even Crick and Watson themselves were inspired by earlier work by one of the founders of quantum mechanics, Erwin Schrodinger. Of course, yeah. Who, who, who talked about, you know, there may be something rather special going on down at the molecular scale. Well, Loudon published a paper in the 1960s where he suggested that it's possible possible for mutations to take place if the proton so the two strands of DNA are held together by hydrogen bonds yeah. um, which is for me as a nuclear physicist that's a proton I don't care about electrons you know <laughs> chemists can worry about electrons <laughs> the, the biologists can worry about the bigger molecules for me it's a proton and that proton can sit on one of the nucleotides on one side of the DNA but it can jump possibly to the other side and that's acknowledged and been, been, been established. And even Crick and Watson acknowledged that. What Loudon said was, what if it didn't hop across from one molecule to the other uh, molecule on the other strand, but it quantum tunneled across? So it doesn't have enough energy to get across, but it's simply there's a probability that it could find itself on the other side. If then the two strands split, they divide and then um, replicate themselves, make copies of themselves, that proton being in the wrong place could lead to a mutation. So our work is extending that work going all the way back half a century, but now doing it more carefully. So using more, more computer-heavy techniques like density functional theory uh, to, to, to model the structure of these, of these molecules and see whether quantum mechanics really is there or not. And just for a reminder for our listeners, we did an episode on, well, Tim and David did an episode on DFT last year. If anyone wants to go back and listen to that as a little reminder of what DFT is. So we've also read your paper in the Origins of Quantum Biology, going back to the topic, and we will link both of the papers we've mentioned in here to the description for our listeners. This paper originally discusses the history and the first ideas that led to quantum biology, and it does mention that most of the principles of applying quantum theories to life processes do come from as early as the 1940s by Pascal Jordan and Erwin Schrödinger. But why do you think the area is growing so fast now and it didn't develop at the time then? Well, various reasons. One of the reasons, interesting historically, that Pascal Jordan, as you say, he was one of the founders of quantum mechanics. He published a classic paper with Max Born and Heisenberg on what we call now matrix mechanics. He was one of the many pioneers in the 1920s and 30s of quantum mechanics. He was the person who most championed the ideas of quantum biology, even in the early 1930s. But... Pascal Jordan was a Nazi and not just, you know, uh, keep your head down and don't criticize, you know, the, the, the politics of the time. Ideologically, he really was a fascist. And of course, after the war, his reputation was destroyed, of course, quite rightly. But with it were all these ideas about quantum biology. So in a sense, it got tainted in the same way that something like eugenics got, I guess, tainted after the war because it was a, a discredited area of science. Quantum biology, poor thing, you know, was innocent in this, but because it was Pascal Jordan who was pushing it, it died. Schrodinger um, resurrected some of these ideas in his book, What is Life, in the 1940s. One of the reasons why it didn't really catch on was because molecular biology and genetics has been so remarkably successful. 
in the last almost a century now. So that developed roughly in parallel with quantum mechanics. So molecular biologists will say, look, we don't need quantum mechanics. Look how much we have achieved. Look, you know, mapping the human genome, you know, all the information we're gathering, all the Nobel Prizes in biochemistry without quantum mechanics. The reason why it's now becoming more exciting is we are starting to see certain experiments that are hinting at something interesting going on. For example, the idea that in photosynthesis, the photon, the lump of light energy that's captured by chlorophyll and delivered to the reaction center in the cell, doesn't follow a random path to bounce through this molecular forest to get to where it needs to get to in order for its energy to be used chemically. Because if that were the case, more likely than not, that energy will be lost as waste heat, it will be dissipated. And yet that bit of photosynthesis, photosynthesis being a very complex process in, in its entirety, that first initial bit is remarkably efficient. And this experimental evidence suggests that that's because this lump of energy is pursuing all possible paths simultaneously. The idea that a quantum physicist says, oh, yes, of course, that's called quantum superposition, interference, coherence, whatever, you know, we understand that. But for biologists, well, hang on, that sounds like magic. So even now, I mean, there are many papers have been published on quantum coherence and photosynthesis, but they are still to some extent controversial because there are potentially other ways less sexy ways of explaining yeah. <laughs> it. And there have been other experimental examples. For example, the enzymes actually are able to transport electrons and indeed protons from one part of a biomolecular structure to another via quantum tunneling. And that's a very established process. That is. That, that's been known since the 1960s. Yeah, we and were chance. discussing that because we have some tutoring for undergrads and she actually discusses that in her classes. Ah, so right, it's okay. a well-accepted thing so, even by yeah. the chemistry community. So it is known that, you know, quantum tunneling plays a role in enzyme uh, action, enzyme catalysis. Either lots of biologists don't know about this, or they don't appreciate that quantum tunneling is actually pretty weird when you try and dig into what it means. So, we, you know, it shouldn't be taken so glibly and trivially. Here is a, an established example of quantum biology. So that was going to be actually my next question, that if this is such an accepted, and it's an accepted process, then why do you think people are still hesitant to consider that quantum biology does actually play a serious role mm. in life processes? My view is what I said earlier, that physicists find biology difficult, mm. biologists find quantum mechanics difficult, chemists are hard to get excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also is this fear that quantum biology has a, a ring of, you know, pseudo-scientific yes. woo-woo about it. That is, it. is it serious science? Because, of course, for most people, it's like, oh, I see, oh, that's like consciousness is down to quantum mechanics and the hammer off Penrose ideas. I think to this point, it's not really the field's fault, but because many new areas are also using like quantum yam yeah. to explain it. And they always use the quantum word, like, like a buzzword yeah. at the moment. I think biology has been slightly tainted by that. Yes, that's right. So in nuclear physics, I've never had that problem. Yeah. No one says to nuclear physics, oh, can you explain telepathy then with entangled particles? And you say, go away. You know, I'm, I'm dealing with an atomic nucleus, the playground of quantum mechanics. But once you start applying it to explaining aspects of life, then yes, it opens itself up to the charlatans. And yeah. so, so that's another fear, I think, a hesitancy that people have. But for me, that's great because it means that the field, an exciting potentially exciting new field is open up and there's not that many of us fighting against each other in a race. It may end up actually not being as interesting as we thought, but it's exciting enough that we need to take it seriously. So give it a try. Yeah. Give it a try. Yeah. So is there something specific that you're currently working on and keen to find out? And also, where do you see this field going in 10 years? 
Um, well, so to answer the first question, my current interest is in trying to understand how quantum effects can persist inside living cells. High temperature, biological temperatures, you know, very, lots of thousands of chemical reactions. And if nothing else, you've got water molecules bombarding your molecules that are trying to retain their quantumness and causing this to, to dissipate, to decohere very quickly. One idea that has been proposed, and there's been a lot of theoretical work on this, is that noise tends to cause quantum decoherence very quickly. But it may be that life has evolved ways of tweaking that noise, so you get coloured noise rather than white noise. You know, molecular vibrations may, may resonate with the sort of frequencies that are required to make quantum effects persist. We're developing theoretical ideas in what's called open quantum systems, where you have your quantum system interacting with its environment and extending that. So usually the, the, the trick is to say that the environment is so big and complicated, it retains no memory of the system. You know, it's just like heat dissipating from a hot to, uh, system to cold environment. So these are called Markovian processes. So together with colleagues of mine, um, Andrea Rocco is a physicist student, Nick Warren, we're, we're currently writing up um, a paper on what's called non-Markovian processes. So where the system does retain a certain memory, which is what you should get if you do the, the maths properly, of these quantum processes. And when it does, we see these quantum effects persisting for maybe a hundred times longer than you would in the simple Markovian approximation. So it's a mathematical approximation uh, that we are sort of adding corrections to and finding some interesting results. It's a long way from the lab, though. It's a long way from actually doing doing the experiments biologically. So I guess this kind of connects it back to the photosynthesis example that you were mentioning, because I think many of the critics of the current mm. situation that's not so widely accepted is that coherence effects don't last long enough yeah. for what photosynthesis actually has to do. Exactly. So yeah. would you say this is how you go around it? Or yeah, I, I think and it may be the case that they don't. What we're keen to find out is that, you know, when they say they don't last long enough, what is that based on? It's based on a simplistic calculation, a Markovian approximation, what's called the Caldera-Leggett model of open quantum systems, where they might be throwing away the baby with the bathwater. They might be missing what's really exciting. If life does utilize quantum mechanics and the tricks of the quantum world, it's clearly able to make them last long enough to have an effect. And if we discover that by doing the, the modeling these systems more accurately, we find that the coherence times are much longer, that is very interesting. Suddenly we can see a way as to how this works. You shouldn't just dismiss it based on some outdated and poor <laughs> approximation in open quantum systems. So can we apply this research to solve any problems we're facing in the world? Yes, quantum biology will solve all problems. Quantum <laughs> biology will solve Brexit. It'll get rid of Donald Trump. It'll, yeah, it'll um, cure climate change. Certainly, it's, you know, one is always very careful when, when, when you write a grant proposal, for example, to get research. Very often you have to say what the impact of your work will be. Of course. It's sometimes, you know, quite tempting to oversell what it's going to lead to. And, and I'm very concerned about something like quantum biology, which is still such a very young field, still speculative, to make claims that are too ambitious. You know, you can imagine, uh, let's say, an example, which, which is, is a bad one, right? So this is, and this is not what I'm claiming. If quantum tunneling plays a, a role in genetic mutations, and we know there are lots of reasons why mutations take place, copying errors, ionizing radiation. But let's say quantum tunneling pl plays an important role, and we could control the rate of quantum tunneling. You replace your protons by deuterons, right? And you grow, grow some your DNA in heavy water. 
deuteron, the nucleus of deuterium, is twice as massive as a proton, much harder to, to, to quantum tunnel. If you could control quantum tunneling and you could control mutations, and then you apply that to, let's say, areas of medicine like cancer, where we know it's down to multiple different mutations that, that have to all sort of line up in order to, for, for a cell to become cancerous. You could imagine the headlines in tabloid newspapers, <laughs> quantum biology cures cancer. Yes. Um, so, so, so there are those sorts of ideas that, that we are such a long way from, from, from course, getting to. Yeah. So the moment we're partly because of the, the, the speculative nature of the field, and the suspicion that our colleagues have about it, uh, we, we certainly want to make sure we walk before we can run. So it's, it, it, one never wants to make grand claims about, you know, we will discover the secrets of life itself and it's all down to quantum mechanics. It's great to be able to make good headlines, but it's not good science. <laughs> so all of this must be keeping you quite busy, but we have seen, we know that you've recently published a book. Can you tell us a little bit about it? So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love writing. So my, I, I divide my time between academia. Now that with the quantum biology and we've got our doctoral training centre here yes. at Surrey, I have five PhD students that keep me very busy. You, you've, came, you've come to meet me here. I've just rushed from giving a, one of my, my lectures to my final years, uh, undergraduates. So half of my time is at the university. The other half of my time I do the radio and the TV. And, and, but, but writing is something I love. It's called Sunfall. It comes out in a couple of months, oh. and it's a science fiction thriller. It's set in 2041. It's basically a Hollywood disaster movie in a novel, right? It's sort of, wow. you know, the world is coming to, to an end, and science has to save the world. And it involves dark matter, and augmented reality, and artificial intelligence, <laughs> and all those sorts of quantum entanglement. And I've, I've loved writing it, you know, because I, I, I know the science, but being able to tell a story, to tell an, in, an exciting story that keeps the reader wanting to turn the page, that's been fun and a, and a steep learning curve. <laughs> yes, we will keep an eye out of it. Absolutely. <laughs> so our final question really is that you have become a very well-known personality now. Did you plan to make the transition from science to more science and media or did it? Do things just kind of work out it, that way? It just happened by accident. I mean, nowadays, you know, um, young scientists who, you know, even at undergraduate level, before they, you know, embark on, say, an academic career, you know, doing a PhD, see science communication as, a, uh, as an exciting career choice. First of all, one should always dis distinguish between science communicators and scientists who communicate. Mm. And I'm one of the latter. You know, I've never wanted to just be a journalist talking about other people's work. I want to be. And that's only become possible in my generation. So when I first started science communication in the early 90s, a lot of my colleagues warned me not to. You know, at the time I had a, a, um, a research fellowship with, and I was um, publishing six or seven papers a year, going to all conferences and so on. So why do you want to go and talk to school kids or do radio interviews when you, when you should be establishing your research career? And I said, why can't I do both? And actually, my generation is the first that's been able to do that. You know, if you look at other people like Marcus de Sotoy or Brian Cox, um, uh, various people in, in, in other areas of science, we, we still have an, an academic interest but we're able to do the communicating as well. So, I, I, no, I never started off wanting to, to, to do science communication. I, it was very much a traditional PhD, postdoc, second postdoc, get a lectureship, start doing some teaching, apply for grants, go to conferences, publish, but all the usual things. Gradually, I realized I enjoyed explaining what I do 
to to wider audiences, whether it's young or old. And so I look back now. If I hadn't done this, I wouldn't have been done. I did the IOP Institute of Physics Schools and Colleges lectures twenty two years ago, nineteen ninety seven talking to hundreds of school the teenagers i was talking about black holes and cosmology off the back of that they commissioned me to write my first popular science book off the back of that i did the bit of telly and so one thing so i never had this ambition to be where i am now but now that i'm here i think i've got the right balance this 50 50 i wouldn't want to give up my academic credibility and my academic research nor do i want to give up being able to do the writing and broadcasting so that's all we have time for during this interview. Thank you so much for letting us speak to you, Professor Jim Al-Khalili. We look forward to seeing what you do next. And we Thank will you. read your novel now. We are yes, very excited. Yes, make sure you do. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again there to Jim for speaking with us. I didn't know much about the area of quantum biology, but I came away from that feeling like I knew a lot more. Oh, yes, me too. Plus, it was a very fun chat that that we've had. What I particularly liked as well was finding out about moving not just necessarily from science into a solely academic career, but also being able to go into the broadcasting area, which might be of interest to some of our listeners. Who knows? So everyone, we hope you've enjoyed our last episode of this series and our last episode of the podcast. It's in SoundCloud for you to replay whenever you miss us a bit. And if you do really miss us, you can always follow us on social media at Twitter which we will link in the description. And don't forget to follow the Theoretically Speaking podcast in social media, at TheoryPod in both Twitter and Instagram. Lastly, we would like to thank our predecessors, Tim and David, for creating this podcast and trusting us with the second series of it. Follow them as well on Twitter. As always, thanks to the EPSRC and TMCS for funding this podcast. Goodbye and thanks for all the listens, folks. You have been listening to Theoretically Speaking. Speaking.